Hi, and welcome to another uh, live video. I'm doing this from Belfast uh, on the, uh, the 15th of April, just a few hours before my Wake Festival starts. So basically, I have 100 people who are currently in Belfast uh, doing lots of things, getting settled into their hotels, going watching movies, because there's a Belfast Film Festival at the moment, um, and also just going to other events and you know, touring around Belfast. And this evening, we meet at the Duke of York to do registration. And then we're going to have five days together where we're going to do, I'm going to do talks. I've invited other people to give talks. We have artists, we have musicians, um, we have tours set up, um, and we have a few surprises. So this is the highlight of my year every year. Um, and if you're interested, I'm pretty sure I'll be doing it next year. I always hesitate until I get this one over me, um, but uh, uh, I think I want to do one in 2019, and I want to make it the biggest one yet. That's, that's the plan so far. So that's why I'm in Belfast. Um, but I thought I'd jump on and do a Facebook Live just talking about what is pyrotheology, because uh, that's one of the prime topics of the conference, is kind of going in deep into the, the, the theory and the practice of parotheology. And, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding that, that floats around about it. Um, I should say this, by the way, to start with, uh, parotheology, like anything, um, is created after the fact, right? I, like, I, I almost date the birth of parotheology to um, an academic journal that came out with a number of uh, philosophers and theorists who critiqued it. So what, what happened is a group of uh, very smart uh, individuals came together, they wrote critiques of parotheology and I responded to them. And so what happened then is they, they galvanized what it was through intelligent critique and then I responded to it. So in some respects, I just picked a word out of thin air. It was actually from a friend, Chris Fry, um, whenever we were doing some stuff in Belfast uh, he came up with a term for an event that we ran, and I thought, oh, that's a good term to kind of, you know, uh, almost put a circle around the kind of work that I'm doing. But that work was going in lots of different directions. And, and then some people come along and they begin to critique it. And in critiquing it, they treat it as something solid. And then it kind of comes into existence. Uh, so... Good critics are, are always what you want when you're starting a movement, because in a sense, your critics are the ones who give shape and form to, to what you're doing. Um, but, you know, I, I get a lot of questions uh, about parotheology, and I actually would like to do a series of Facebook uh, uh, live videos looking at those questions and trying to give provisional answers. And one of the questions that I saw recently on a Facebook forum was uh, what is parotheology's relationship to doubt? Uh, they were saying, well, basically, is this just kind of saying we don't know? You know, so parotheology is just, I don't know the, the, the secret of the world and life, and we all should have a bit of doubt and unknowing in our lives. And I can understand why someone would think that, but actually that is not what parotheology is. Uh, you know, it's an element of parotheology, but that's an element of any worldview. Um, any you know, any system, any, you know, there's plenty of philosophical and religious frameworks that have a place for doubt and unknowing and complexity. 
uh, and for saying, well, we might know the answer. The answer's out there, but we might not know it. And it's good to have a bit of humility. This is called um, epistemological humility, right? So you kind of like, you, yeah, you have views and you have perspectives, but you're not going to kill over them. You're going to listen to other people. You're going to go, right, maybe I could learn from somebody else. And, you know, that's all well and good. But that's not specific to, obviously, the parotheological approach. Um, but parotheology does have a privileged place for doubt, unknowing, and complexity. And it starts there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start there with this, what's called the ontic experience of doubt, which just basically means our contingent experience. Uh, whenever your world begins to collapse, uh, when something happens to you that gets you to think that uh, maybe your political, religious, cultural worldview um, doesn't hold all the answers. And parotheology starts there as a, a, because it basically, it's, it is a practice whereby opening ourselves up to self-doubt and questioning and bringing that stuff up to the surface is the step towards a different form of life, a different form of desire, a different form of being in the world, which is actually so different you could call it apocalyptic. As in apocalypse meaning the destruction of a world uh, and, the, and the formation of a new world. And so the idea is that doubt, ambiguity, ambiguity and complexity can be a type of apocalyptic event that destroys a dominant way in which human beings engage with their environment that is destructive. It's destructive to them, destructive to other people, destructive to the world at large. That is the destruction of that, and it is the bringing into being a different form of desire and a different way of engaging with the world. So parotheology simply uses doubt, complexity, and ambiguity as the means to draw people into that journey. So you start basically with the idea that someone is going through a divorce. Someone's child has tragically died. Uh, someone has lost their job and their home. Um, their entire way of life has begun to crumble. Um, or it can be a small thing, seemingly small. Uh, someone doesn't return your love, uh, you know, unrequited love or um, you just kind of suddenly have a sense of meaninglessness in a job that you once found meaningful and find life-giving. In whatever way it is, there are times in our lives when everything shakes. We find a contradiction in our lives. Things don't make sense. Um, most of the time, we find ways of covering over that. In fact, a technical term for that is ideology. Ideology can be described as a system of thought that covers over the ambiguities and the contradictions of life. That basically give an answer for your suffering, give an answer for why things are happening. Um, and in doing so, uh, simplify uh, the trauma and the contradiction that, that is actually happening. So ideology basically kind of like uh, is a way of... Uh, covering over the cracks in our experience. A theodicy being one example of that. So you, you experience some breakdown in your life 
and maybe you've experienced that 50 times, you know, but there's a 51st time and you just can't cover over it. You can't paper over it. You can't use your existing uh, religious or political worldview in order to say, oh, it all makes sense. It's all fine. It'll all be good in the end. And it's, it's almost like you're watching a TV program and the screen shakes and the shaking of the screen, uh, the shaking of the image uh, or the distortion of the image suddenly reminds you that this is not reality. You know, you can watch something and you're caught up in it, you think it's reality and then everything shakes and you're just reminded that, oh, this is a construction. So something happens that shakes your, your way of looking at the world and uh, you suddenly think this is contingent. Now, when that happens, so parotheology dives into that. So a parotheological practice is one that brings that to the surface, doesn't try to cover it over with ideology, doesn't try to get rid of it, but tries to allow it to resonate so that you, but in a way that you can cope with. So that's why ritual is required. That's why you know, poetry and music and art and all of that stuff is required because it's very hard to live with the resonance of that kind of the shaking of the foundations of your life. But the, what it does then, and this is where it diverges from progressive theology, from liberal theology, from confessional theology in general, actually, as well as from New Age spirituality, Jungian psychoanalysis, uh, Gnosticism, right? Parotheology is kind of a rejection of all of those. Because instead of trying to say that beneath this experience of contradiction and suffering that you're feeling, there's actually wholeness, completeness, there is an ability in this life or the next to reconnect with an underlying harmony. Uh, the paratheological approach draws you into an existential experience, which means it draws you into the idea that, that your contingent experience of loss that is connected to you and your history and your life actually reflects a truth about humanity in general, that there is something about being human which has trauma built into it. So in other words, you move from the traumas that happen to you in life to the trauma that is life itself. So parotheological approach then brings you into an existential awareness. So that's the next step, generally is the next step. And then from there, and this is where it gets very theoretical, um, parotheology is a, is a theory that says that that existential experience of trauma, of contradiction in life, <clears throat> is actually hardwired into being itself. Uh, this is actually, um, I watched the film Annihilation last night, <clears throat> and um, Annihilation kind of explores this, the whole idea, so what is Annihilation? <clears throat> well, in the film, Annihilation isn't the alien coming to Earth, right? Uh, annihilation is something that is hard baked into human psychology and human biology that is self-destructive. So when you're watching the movie, you go, right, okay, annihilation, the annihilation is talking about is this feature of humanity that destroys itself. 
So, <clears throat> and then the movie is kind of about that and there's an ultimately self-destructive act at the end and all of that. So the, like there's one moment in the movie where the psychologist, because all of the, the four women who are going into the shimmer, which is this, uh, uh, you know, basically a, a comet has hit the, has hit the planet Earth. Uh, some sort of alien organism has arisen out of that and has, is creating a growing boundary that it threatens to uh, completely transform the earth um, by mixing DNA. Uh, but all the four women who enter into the shimmer, uh, they're all self-destructive. Uh, they're all going in there because in a sense they want to die in some way. They are doing something. So they are the expression of annihilation. Um, and yeah, the, the leader says, uh, you know, as a psychologist, she says, we have this, this desire for self-destruction. And then she says to a biologist, you should know, you know, this is, this is actually coded into biology itself. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the contradiction, that it's not just in our psychology. Freud calls it death drive, but in, in biology, it's called evolution. Evolution is the name for an antagonism within being itself. And in psychoanalysis, the name for that is death drive. Um, or the unconscious, maybe. Um, but then the next step is to say, yeah, there is something actually within reality itself that, that, is, dis, that is without harmony. There is a disharmony in being itself. Um, in, in contemporary physics, this is like superpositioning, wave dual, uh, uh, sorry, wave particle duality is another name for this in, in, in physics. That, that there is a there is a discontinuity within being itself, and so in parotheology, the idea is that the individual kind of then comes into contact with the idea that this trauma that they are experiencing contingently connects them with all of humanity, and actually connects them with more than humanity. It connects them with the very nature of the world as such, and then the last level is metaphysics that there is something of an antagonism that is at the very core, at the ground of all being. So there's the four elements. There's ontic uh, antagonism, existential antagonism, ontological antagonism, and metaphysical antagonism. Right. So that's all very you know, philosophical. But it's, it's important for people who are trying to kind of get to grips with the core notions that are within this work that... And I'll put it in concrete form, because this, this becomes very concrete. This sounds abstract, but actually it, it, it pans out in very concrete ways. When you think of the universe as uh, a non-antagonistic reality, um, one of the ways that that plays out is how social bonds are formed. So we think that social bonds are formed through what we have in common. You know, we share the same religion. We share the same geographical place. We share the same race or the same gender or whatever it is, right? So we build community and social bonds on what we concretely have in common. Uh, if you're a part of a church, it might be a mission statement that is said every week or a business. You know, this is, this is what we have in common. This is who we are. Um, but the problem with that type of social bond is because lack 
is constitutive of what it means to be human. Uh, we always repress that. Whenever you try to build social bonds and what we have in common and what we share and on kind of a, a common mission and a common kind of worldview or ideology, then the lack is, is always erased in some sort of way. Um, one way of thinking about this is dating apps. Okay, so one of the problems with a dating app is that uh, the one thing you have to hide is your lack, right? Because, you know, why, why is anyone on Tinder? Well, there's one very obvious reason. People are on Tinder because we have a lack. We experience something that is, that is we're in, we feel incomplete. We're either lonely or we want sexual connection or something, but we're, we're lacking. But that's the one thing you can't really say on a dating app. So whenever you look at people's profiles, it's the opposite. Everybody looks like they're not lacking anything. You know, the guys are all shirtless and, you know, I don't know, taming a lion and the women are all, you know, be, you know at a beach having a, you know, fun and having a drink or whatever it is. Like all the images look like everyone's having a great time. And all of the descriptions are how brilliant the person's life is, what they enjoy and what they like. And, and there's almost, and not, not every profile, but, but almost every profile is trying to cover over the fundamental reason why everybody's there because of a fundamental sense of I'm lacking. There's something incomplete in me. And you're hiding it not just from other people, but from, from yourself. Um, it's one of the reasons why dating apps are so you know, it's hard to make them successful, but then any form of dating is hard to make successful. So I'm not saying don't do it. It's just, that's one of the reasons why there's no easy way to date. <laughs> um, because you have to expose your lack to the other. And that is always incredibly hard. Whether you're on a dating app or not, whether you meet somebody in a pub or at work, it's like exposing your lack uh, to someone who is willing to accept that is a, is a very, very difficult thing. I mean, the other problem with dating apps, of course, is, um, you need an obstacle. So you've heard me talk about this before, but um, the notion of making love used to not be something that two people did. Two people didn't make love. They needed a third person. A third person made love. Um, so what you would do is you would go on a date with a chaperone. And we think that the role of the chaperone is to stop you from doing anything untoward. But actually the role of the chaperone traditionally was to get you to start fantasizing about what you could do if the chaperone wasn't there to stop it. So the chaperone was making love, right? They were, they were creating the love between the two people. And so often in order to spark up desire, you need obstacles. And um, you know, dating apps that like try to always place you with the right person, there can be a lack of obstacle. That kind of means people get bored really quickly. You know, they talk for like, you know, two days and then they lose all interest. Anyway, that uh, uh, divergence um, was for a point. And the point being that, that, that lack is always an operation, but we hide it. And there's three ways that we hide it. Um, they're called repression, disavowal, and foreclosure. Um, I'll, I'll just do one of them. Um, I'll do repression. Repression is where you kind of, you hide the lack that is say, that unifies your community. You hide it. Um, you push it down, you ignore it, you pretend, listen, we've got it all together, everything's great, you know, we've got the answer, we've got the truth, we have this excess. But then what happens is that it returns. And it will return in some way like a scapegoat. 
So the scapegoat is the one who carries the lack for you. Everything's great, except that those people are in our culture. If we got rid of them, oh, then everything would be fantastic. So the other is like stopping you from your wholeness and completeness, right? So fascism is that obvious example where the fascist has this sense of organic wholeness, harmony, oneness with, you know, with the world, you know, that lack, uh, critique of technology, this kind of like soil, soil and blood type of ideology. But the problem is, it's those cultural Marxists, it's the Jews, it's whatever, you know, um, that, 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 that are causing all of the problems. But actually what's happening is that's how the community holds itself together, how it avoids its own lack. The, um, the uh, social antagonisms that exist within the community are able to be dealt with, are able to be held as long as you have some enemy that's the problem, right? So you're always having to create an enemy. That is the problem. And, you know, liberals do it just as much as conservatives. You have an enemy that you think you hate, but actually the enemy is what galvanizes and unifies you. And that can be a good thing, but it can also cover over the inherent antagonisms of life. But you can have social bonds that are related to lack itself. And this is what's key to, to paratheology. Um, I think in America, a contemporary example is Burning Man. Because in Burning Man, you know, even though it's a very new age space, the central ritual is the destruction of this, uh, this sculpture that's created over the few days, right? So everyone is unified around a shared loss. You put, and there's a temple as well, and people put in things into the temple, maybe pains, they sufferings they have, like a, a relationship that went wrong, um, the, a, a letter to a parent who has died, whatever it is, they put that into the temple and then the temple is set on fire and people are briefly unified and have a social bond around a collective loss, a collective destruction. Um, this is why Wake is called Wake, the festival I'm doing, because a wake is an Irish ritual in which you, you watch over the dead body, the body of someone who has died, someone that you love. And then later, you go out and you have drinks and you, you toast the dead person. You, you tell stories about them. You laugh together. You cry together. And the idea of a wake is that you are unified around a shared loss, the death of this person. And in being unified around the shared loss, uh, you, in a sense, let that person go. But you also carry them with you into the future. You carry the best of them forward. In mourning, you remember. In mourning, you bring that person forward in your life. If you don't mourn, if you just lock it out, um, then you know all these problems arise. And interestingly, the central uh, you know, sacramental activity of Christianity is the Last Supper, which is a social bond around a loss, the death of God. Right. So the kind of the central ritual of Christianity is a social bond created through a shared sense of loss. So parotheology attempts to create a social bond, a form of collective, a community, a political and religious community in which the social bond is based around the shared loss and losses of the people in that community. And the losses are specific to various communities. So uh, I was in a debate recently and the guy was like, we're talking about interfaith stuff. And one of the guys said, well, you know, 
your religion is right for you, my religion is right for me. But no, I, I think it's more interesting than that. I think your religion is wrong for you and my religion is wrong for me, right? In other words, you have an ideological system and way of understanding the world and it's problematic in various ways that I don't know. <laughs> and it causes all sorts of problems and injustices in ways that I don't even know, right? And you, your job is to bring those oppressions and those problems to light and to try to kind of you know mitigate against them to try to kind of improve things and ultimately to get your community to embrace the inherent antagonisms of life and i have to do the same with my religion and maybe you'll invite me to to speak into your religion maybe and maybe i'll have something interesting to say and probably not and maybe I'll invite you to speak into my religion and you'll have something interesting to say. But ultimately, you know, we all, our main job is to work with the antagonisms that operate within our ideological structures. So at a very concrete level, uh, what parotheology attempts to do is to construct a social bond around a sense of a shared loss. Well, all our losses are different, but the sense that that shared loss unifies us, right? Doesn't separate us. It unifies us. Just like um, you can you can go to a party, right? And at a party, one of the reasons why parties are so antisocial is because everybody's trying to show their excess, show how great they are. If you go to a party in LA, everyone's cool and the people are dressed up and they do amazing things if you talk to them and everybody's showing their excess. And you cannot build a relationship on that, right? Because that's at the level of the imaginary and you can admire them or you can be jealous of them and all of that stuff. But it's the moment when you meet somebody and they tell you something difficult that's going on, that they kind of like share something that, that they're struggling with. That's where real friendship can, can begin to happen. A real deep social bond can occur. And so parties, uh, Alan de Bouton talks about this very good. He says, like, uh, social people hate parties. A social person will prefer to go to bed at nine o'clock than go to a party because the least social place you can be is a party. <laughs> and they're, they're almost designed to be antisocial because they're designed to cover over the lack of the people in the room. Um, but parotheology is an attempt to create a space in which we encounter that lack within ourselves we see that it unifies us with, with other people in the room and in the world, that that actually connects with something fundamental to nature itself, and this is the theological bit, to the ground of being. Okay, there you go. Um, in a nutshell, uh, that's why parotheology you know, is different from liberal and progressive theology. I'll try and do another one tomorrow. I'd love to look at a paratheological look at the holy and how that differs from a progressive or a liberal notion of the holy um, that connects with some of the things we've looked at. Uh, I will, at six o'clock, I probably need to go soon, but I'll maybe look and see if there's any questions and fear and trembling. Um, see if anybody's said anything. I have to connect to the internet first. My iPhone keeps disconnecting me from the internet. If there's any tech people out there, uh, 
you might know why that is. If this takes me more than a few seconds, I'll, uh, I won't put you through the suffering of this. Okay, here we go. All right. Oh, there's people clicking in from lots of different places. Oh, uh, Seth, <laughs> Seth, you're hilarious. I don't know if I've met you before, but Seth Southard is like the best quoter I've ever met. Every time I do a Facebook Live, he throws in some amazing quote, like amazing quote from a thinker who I really respect. I, I, maybe you're going to fail here, I don't know, but it's, he quotes Paul Tillich. Sometimes I think it is my mission to bring faith to the faithless and doubt to the faithful. Paul Tillich, yes. The, you're quoting Paul Tillich, and actually, not to defend what I'm saying too much, but I feel this is in continuity with Paul Tillich, uh, very much in continuity. Like he argued that that the doubt and unknowing that is experienced in our individual lives reflects something that is connected ontologically to reality itself. And that the role of the church is not to cover over it, which sadly I think is what the confessional church does. And that's why I largely reject the confessional church. Although I think there are versions of it, you know, elements there that do do it. But the confessional church by and large attempts to cover over that. Whereas Paul Tillich, in his view of the church, it is the place where that, um, that, that unknowing and that doubt and that, that part of being human is brought to the surface and positivized. Like, uh, in other words, it is, it is rendered productive and it is seen as the very heart of theology, the secret of theology. Um, and and that, I haven't touched on that in this Facebook Live, so maybe I'll, I'll go on to that in another Facebook Live. So thank you, Seth. Appreciate it. Um, Just reading through, sorry. Uh, okay, I'll read one more and then we'll, we'll check out. Uh, Peter, what thoughts do you have on terror management theory? Ah, oh, in perpetuating religious heritage. If I've, I've asked you that before, if I have, please forgive me. Um, terror management, okay, so is that kind of Naomi Klein kind of stuff of how terror is used in order to, mostly by the right, in order to um, uh, to create uh, you know politically reactive policies, I think that's what. Although terror management can be used on any side, but I think I'm guessing that's what you mean by terror management. Um, so you're asking, what thoughts do you have on terror management theory and perpetuating religious heritage? Yeah, I, I think if I'm getting your question, I think there's a lot in that. Um, the big the big issue is ideology. For me, ideology is the attempt to justify and cover over an inherent antagonism in life. So terror man the, the original terror management is theodicy. <laughs> like something horrific happens and theodicy comes in to say, oh, you know, it's because you were bad or it's a test from God or it's this or it's that. So I suppose theodicy is the original terror management. Um, and then Job is the original critique of theodicy, the rejection of all the theodicies that are given and the confrontation with the antagonism of life. Um, there's a really good podcast uh, called Why Theory, um, and there's an episode on ideology, and I would recommend that if you want to 
for any of you here watching this, you'd like to understand more about ideology to check that out. Um, so yeah, uh, paratheology is an attempt to protect us against theodicy because not, not because, but basically, I mean, if it worked, that would be great, but it's because theodicy is often a conservative move and a move that um, ultimately causes more problems than it solves. I don't know if I'm answering your question that well, but I'll have a think about it. Maybe do a Facebook Live on it. Um, oh, Jeremy says, classic Elliot Morgan Tinder bit. Hi, yeah, my friend Elliot Morgan, who I do The Fundamentalist with, he's got a bit on Tinder um, that is kind of looking at the same thing I'm talking about. So he'll probably say he took it from me. I'll say I took it from him. Here, ironically, he's just texted me. So maybe he's watching this now going, you just plagiarized me. You just ripped me off. <laughs> but go and, go and watch Elliot Morgan's bit on his, uh, his YouTube channel. Thank you so much for checking in. Um, I'm now going to go and start my Wake Festival. And um, I'll hopefully talk to you all again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.